Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two quan. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, um, unnamed trading firms who are very involved. Um, Alec.eth is the ultimate possible. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros. First, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Hello. Next, we've got Robert, the crypto connoisseur and czar of Superstate. GM, everybody. And we've got Tarun, the gigabrain and grand poobah at Gauntlet. Aloha. And today, we've got a special guest, Ogle, crypto cyber sleuth and negotiator. Hello, hello. <laughs> and finally, I'm Asib, the head hype man at Dragonfly. So we are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is an investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see choppingblock.xyz for more disclosures. Before we even start, can I make one point? Tom is on his like Steve Jobs era, like in this episode. He's like, he's got the black turtleneck. I feel like, I feel like I'm... I feel like I I'm feel ready like to. Steve Jobs doesn't have a monopoly on the black turtleneck. I can wear a black turtleneck. <laughs> Elizabeth Holmes. It's Steve, jo- also. Elizabeth Holmes yeah. Steve Jobs. Yeah, kind yeah, of, it's sure. pretty tainted. Tainted. Technically, it's, it's Navy, but you know, the camera does not pick it up. The white balance is off. So. It doesn't look very Navy. It, it just like, it look, it, don't, you guys, don't you guys think this is a different aesthetic for Tom? I just am not. It's a little bit. It's a little bit different. It's Tom's winter wardrobe. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's cold yeah. in New York. You know, you gotta, I have to dress <laughs> you gotta, for the You got to warm that neck up. Yeah, no, yeah. I got it. I got Rude, it. We, we don't know each other, but I would say you've got the Iris Opful uh, look going on <laughs> yourself. I do. I do. I love Iris. One of the one of the best dressed women in history. It is true. Okay. Well, um, so the reason why we brought Ogle on is that it's been a very crazy week for exploits and specifically around an exploit in KyberSwap. So KyberSwap, for those of you who don't know, it's a very OG DeFi protocol way, way back in the day, founded by uh, Loy Liu and, and a couple other folks. And KyberSwap on November 22nd, so about a week ago from today when we're recording this, so KyberSwap was attacked by what's been described as an infinite money glitch. So essentially, there's a very, very subtle bug in the way that it was essentially doing math to figure out the... Uh, the edge cases around how different parts of the liquidity curve was being calculated. And based on an, a very, very tiny error in calculating some of these liquidity boundaries, uh, an attacker was able to drain almost all the money that was held inside of KyberSwap. So about $50 million was stolen across Arbitrum, Optimism, and Ethereum. Uh, the, the hacker themselves was a very colorful hacker. Uh, they left a lot of charming comments in the process of the hack in the event logs, leaving comments such as, Step two, finding liquidity required. Is it enough? And uh, a much more, much more salacious uh, description of what they were doing to the, the contract. The KyberSwap then advised everybody to withdraw their funds and they offered a 10% bounty for the attacker to return their funds. And it seems like this may have been connected to the index finance hack that occurred two years ago, uh, which was perpetrated by this guy, Andean Medjev, Medjedovic. Um, however, it could apparently $2 million was sent 
to an address that was controlled by that guy, but it may have been misdirection. Nobody really knows. It's hard to prove any of these things. So two days later, after the hack, uh, KyberSwap announces to the attacker, please return 90% of the funds that you took from users by 6 a.m. UTC on November 25th. Otherwise, we are going to pursue you. And the hacker responded, uh, again, through on-chain mechanisms in the, in the sort of memo field of a transaction, negotiations will start in a few hours when I'm fully rested. Essentially telling people, like, go oh, chill out. I'm not ready yet to have this uh, conversation. KyberSwap then, uh, a couple of days later, they recovered about $4.7 million through front-running bots that apparently, uh, you know, some folks who were front-running some of the attackers uh, through generalized front-running, they were able to front-run some of the attackers' attacks and recover some of the money, which was sent back to KyberSwap. Then, yesterday, the hacker sent another message to KyberSwap saying the following, I said I was willing to negotiate. In return, I've received mostly threats, deadlines, and general unfriendliness from the executive team. That's okay. I don't mind. I have prepared a statement concerning our potential treaty. I plan to release it on November 30th at noon UTC sharp. Under the assumption I'm treated with further hostility, we can reschedule for a later date when we all feel more civil. You need only say the word. If not, we proceed as planned on November 30th. Thank you. So this has been kind of a, a weirdly dramatic hack. So the hacks in DeFi happen all the time, but the nature of the attacker and their communication style struck me as very strange. Um, and so I'm curious to get your guys' reactions to this. This feels like a group of people instead of one, because I feel like the change in tone didn't feel like quite consistent. Usually I feel like the attackers are more consistent than this. So the reason why I brought on Ogle to discuss this is that Ogle actually is involved in the negotiations with the Kyber hacker. And Ogle has some experience working with through a bunch of these different hacker negotiations, which is honestly very new to me. I've not really seen how these things play out. I always assumed they were somewhat ad hoc, but it seems like actually there are a lot of repeat players. I don't know if the hackers are repeat player, you know, uh, presumably perhaps, but the, the negotiators and the people who are, you know, kind of solving this on the protocol side seem to be repeat players. I don't know what, what you guys think of this phenomenon, but it does seem to me, I wrote a tweet there about this earlier. It seems to me like this whole dynamic between protocols that are getting hacked and the negotiations with the hackers is becoming more and more professionalized and more standardized. Like in the past, it was quite chaotic. It was very hard to find these people. Nobody really knew how to reach them. And it was it, people just assumed that the attackers run away with everything. And now it's become standard to have this kind of negotiation. You, you give back 10%. The, you know, things seem to be a little bit more calm. I, I don't know if, what you guys think of this and how this is affecting the dynamic in, in attacks on, on DeFi like this. Well, as an outsider to this, I mean, the first hacks that I remember were really the BZX ones uh, that kicked off sort of like the DeFi protocol trend of getting hacked. And that was much more chaotic. I mean, recoveries were zero. I don't even think that there was the expectation that there would be recoveries. I think it was like there's this common expectation, like following the first hack of all time, really, the DAO, where it was like, okay, that's the end. Once something is hacked, it's basically game over for that smart contract and for the expectation of the users that had assets inside of it. And that's really changed. I mean, at this point now, you know, there's starting to be playbooks that are being written and a lot of, you know, standards that are starting to emerge. And I agree with you, Haseeb, it definitely feels like we've come a long way over the past, I don't know, what is this, like three years, really, of smart contract hacks. Yeah, I, uh, I, I tend to agree. Um, I think also just, you know, the story two, three years ago even was it was much easier to um, anonymize assets and, you know, get them and, and sort of desegregate them from uh, the attacker address. And then, you know, they're sort of gone. And that's obviously 
harder to do now. But also, I think that the flip side that we've kind of seen is, you know, in these negotiations, you, you know, it's always sort of this uh, leverage point of, hey, you give us most of the money back. We won't, you know, we won't bring in law enforcement and we'll sort of call it a gentleman's agreement and go handshake. And I think it was just um, a, a charge like two months ago. It was like the Southern District charged some engineer in New York with, with hacking some protocol, even though he returned most of the funds and they sort of reached some you know, negotiation. And so it's like, Mango. it's actually, yeah, it, it, it was not Mango, actually. Because I think Mango didn't return the funds, right? Um, but it was it was. Well, he did actually return some of the funds. Okay, maybe maybe it was Mango, but in any scenario, you know, it doesn't matter, right? Because it's actually a criminal matter, and so if the state is mad at you, they will go and arrest you, and so it doesn't matter if you have this you know, civil agreement or this handshake agreement with the protocol, uh, you can still be you know arrested and charged. Yeah, on 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 that one, Tom. Uh, it, I mean, that one in particular was interesting because, you know, he did give back some of the money. He kept loads of it though, but I think what screwed him and why he ended up getting charged is because he was so bombastic. And he was he, he taunted the regulators. He taunted the police over and over and over again. And you know, a lot of people who t- who talked to him in some of the Telegram groups and so forth, including myself, were like, "What is wrong with you? Like, you've you've essentially gotten away with the situation. You've gotten lots of money. Why would you then go and publicly just be like like the Southern District can suck it, you know? And think like, why would you do that? Like, there, there's just nothing to gain from that, you know? I mean, I can't I can't speak on on details, but I, I'm very confident that that was a big, big part of why he was still pursued. It is the case in these in these situations where there's not a victim left anymore. If most of the money's come back or all the money's come back, there's no victim. In my experience working with the, you know, with with these agencies, they don't really care anymore at that point. They say, you know what, like we're not going to have a participating victim um, that, that's going to help us along the path. We do need their participation. We need them to give us logs. We need to give them. So if they're not going to help us, we're not going to help them. Let's just do something else here. But yeah, with him, it was a little bit different. Interesting. I, I think I, I maybe just remembered it was actually Shakib uh, Shakib uh, Ahmed um, was this guy who acted in exchange and then returned most of the funds and they still got him anyway and and so I, I hear you I think hey you know uh, the state has limited resources they might not pursue you know this case if uh, no one's really cooperating or sort of helping them out but you know in this scenario you know the, in theory the exchange agreed to this settlement and they they went and got him anyway. This is a centralized exchange that he hacked. Uh yeah. For some reason, that does feel different to me. I don't know that like there's a good reason for that. Maybe because there is, I don't know, like a terms of service and other elements that are more binding than just code is law. Hey, you know, uh, gentlemen's agreement. But actually, no, sorry. It was it was a decentralized exchange. I'm like, it was we were this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, okay. I, I hear you the, too. Hacking a company um, is, is maybe different. Yeah. And there's more legal precedent. The legal precedent that is everywhere in the rest of the economy is theft is theft unless a hundred percent is returned. You know, typically people are being pursued, you know, by the long arm of the law. You know, what's amazing to me is that, you know, there's this expectation still in crypto that it's like, you know, oh, just keep some of it, you know, (laughs) as long as you don't take it all. And I I imagine over time that's going to converge with other expectations outside of crypto. So you, you think this 10% thing is going to go away. I mean, can you imagine if it's like, oh, just hack JP Morgan to keep 10% of whatever <laughs> you hack as a white hat bounty and give back the rest? Like it, it's it, it's funny. I mean, in a sense to think that like that like th- that is the standard and I don't think it'll hold. I think it's a temporary standard. I think it's like a you know, a I, I mean, I think the reason why so it used to be so like 3 years ago, right? You hack a protocol and you steal 30 million dollars. You don't keep 3 million, you keep 30, right? Because back in the day, 
you know, there was much weaker AML rules. Uh, many fewer exchanges were actually enforcing these things. You could move it into stables pretty easily. You could bridge it. You know, there were a lot of ways to kind of make your getaway. Um, in a post-tornado era, in an era where now, you know, Binance and, you know, all these big exchanges are actually being pretty thoughtful about AML, it's much, much, much harder to actually fence the stolen money. Uh, and there are many few more people who have eyes on it and who are more capable of actually following the and tracing those funds. So it seems to me like the reason why we've arrived at 10% and, you know, why not 5%? Why not 1%? Why not a fixed fee? And I think the answer is that it has to do always with the balance of power, which is that the attacker, you know, if, if they want to sell dirty money, if they want to fence dirty money, they can't get 50 cents on the dollar on it. They can't get 30 cents on the dollar on it. They can probably get something. It, I think there is some, you know, market rate that they're basically getting of like, look, if you're if you, if you try to sell a stolen uh, Amazon gift card, you're going to get very good conversion ratio on that. If you try to sell a stolen TV, you're going to get a much worse ratio on that. I mean, I can tell you for sure, because I'm the one who did the 10% in, in uh, the first case. Oh, it, wow. was, it was a message. It was the message uh, that I wrote about a year ago in a, in a different case. And that was the very first time. And it was an attempt to see if we might be able to negotiate since finding someone didn't always result in them actually returning any cash. And so I was thinking, you know, I have a like a traditional business background uh, building tech businesses and there's a lot of negotiation that goes on and I like to negotiate. And part of that is, okay, you got to figure out who are you dealing with? Why did they do what they did? What's their motivation? And how do they get out of the situation if they're, if they're caught, right? And so depending upon that circumstance, I was thinking to myself exactly how you're saying. It was a calculation. I say, okay, look, so they get a hundred, you know, they get a hundred dollars, let's call it. They're going to have to go to the black market and try to get 50 back. If it's a lot of money, it's going to be hard to even get 50, though. It's hard to wash that through gift cards and things like that. So they're going to have to go to some kind of unscrupulous actor. That There's danger in that. There's real danger in that. You go to an unscrupulous actor, you go to the mafia or whatever, you know, so, you know some underground. Why would they even give you 50? They know you got 100. They take out 100 of it. You know, so, so you have real existential risk going through that process. That's the first thing. Second is... The question was, I was thinking, okay, some of these hacks are pretty big, you know, be 30 million, 50 million, $100 million hack, and maybe even bigger. A lot of the time, these guys are just opportunists, right? It's not like they came into this, like really planning out, you know, they've already got 20 in the bank and they want another 10 or whatever. It, it's like, they've got $600 in the bank and they're smart and they want a way to change their lives. Right. And so, and so the approach with the 10% in this particular case, the first case that I did on that was, I was like, I kind of, I figured out who the guy was or I was pretty sure who it was. And I'm like, this guy doesn't need all this money. His life has changed with a fraction of this money. And so that's where the negotiation came from. So I said, look, man, we can both walk away. Your life has changed. You've just made a load of money overnight. The protocol continues going on. All these people's life savings don't disappear all of a sudden. All this work that's been going into this protocol doesn't disappear all of a sudden. Everyone walks away a little bit happy right? And then you're, and you can disappear and not worry about having to spend the rest of your life spending every dollar you just stole, making sure someone's not coming after you because you don't know if the authorities are coming and you don't know who your victims are, right? And you got to be careful with that. If you have a bad victim, that's not, you know, you really need to consider that there's costs that go into that. So, so that was kind of the approach was to try and just, just put logic behind it to say, work with us here and we'll walk away. Everyone walks away a little bit happy, a little bit unhappy. This is fascinating. So Ogle, I would love to hear, so I know you can't comment too much on, on Kyber specifically, but I'd love to hear, you know, walk us through the narrative of like, let's say, let's say not this hack, but a previous hack you've been called into. Tell us a story about what happened, who calls you, when do you enter, how do you find the person and, and how do you end up getting in contact and actually uh, structuring that negotiation? 
yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm specifically curious about the origin story. How, how do you become a negotiator? Like, how do you become known as the guy? Did you have some training in this? Did you watch some like YouTube video? I'm, I'm just curious. <laughs> Is it Liam Neeson, you know, esque? Yeah, you yeah. know what? Like... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'll answer that question first. So um, about two and a quarter years ago, um, I, I've run a big online community with a bunch of folks, and um, and there was a project that came up during the Iron Finance collapse of, of their token where Mark Cuban lost loads of like, you know, tens of millions of dollars overnight. And it was a huge, it was a huge news story. Suddenly people had a lot of stables because they were trying to pull it out of that protocol and they needed somewhere to put their stables. And so they put their money uh, in different places. But one of those places happened to be this thing called Stable Magnet. It was a Binance Smart Chain thing. It had just launched. It was like basically a nothing protocol. It was launched to be a rug. That was the purpose. But this crew had had been rugging $200,000, $100,000 every few months here and there. And suddenly they found themselves with $24 million in their bank, like overnight. And so they were like, they're, okay, let's go. You know, so so they rugged. And I was I was walking uh, uh, through the city and, and a friend of mine called me and he said, People just stole this, you know, stole stole a bunch of money um, from a lot of our members. A lot of people in our, our community, a lot of them got got screwed on this. And in fact, you had a little bit of money in there too, because it was a guy who manages some of my money. So I was like, okay, okay. So looking back, back in the day, the late '90s, early 2000s, I used to do uh, like white hat uh, hacking related stuff in the Web One era, let's call it. And so there are a lot of things that you can do with Web One and Web Two techniques that Web Three hackers don't have any idea about. Like their OPSEC is usually pretty garbage. In fact, like they might really be good at, you know, smart contracts and so forth, but they have no clue how to like hide their tracks. They, they drop them cookie crumbles everywhere. And so I said, you know what? Who knows? Maybe let's try it out. And so in this case, um, I went, looked at it, all their old channels, how their stuff does. And they had left some EXIF data in one of their images, which gave away some information. And from that point, it was like just boom, boom, boom. The, the tile started falling, found the girlfriend, found the guy, found his GitHub, found his friends saw that they forked, you know, found everything at that point. And so the question was, all right, what do you do? And so there was a victims group with like 1500 people in it. And I said, well, let me just see if I can talk these guys into giving the money back. I mean, who knows? Cause I mean, these are young, these are 20 something year old, you know, 21, 22 year old guys. I don't want to ruin their lives. You know, we all make mistakes and this is a serious problem, but if we can get the money back to the victims, maybe there's a way everyone walks away unscathed. Where were these guys located? Uh, Hong Kong. They were in Hong Kong. Okay. And so, um, you know, I did a number of, uh, did a lot of research, got their Hong Kong ID numbers, you know, got everything on these people, found their, you know, the parents, everything about them, and then came into one of the victims group. And I was like, I'm sure they're going to be in this victims group monitoring, seeing what people are saying, right? So I said, hey, folks, look, I'm going to help you find this, this stuff. I think I know who it is. And I just started to talk publicly as if they were listening because I knew they were. And so I'm like, okay, hackers, I know you're in here. Just, just so you don't think I'm bluffing, this is the first initial and last initial of your names, you know, and I, I listed them out. You know, don't think I'm BSing here. And so then what do they do? Well, at that point, I was tracking them in some other way. So what do they do? They, they fled. They left from Hong Kong. And they flew. And this was during the COVID time. They left from Hong Kong and flew over to, uh, to England, which was one of the only places you could go easily at that point uh, uh, during COVID. England had a 10-day quarantine period with a bunch of hotels that were set up for that process. I speak Chinese. And so, and so I, I was having these, these conversations and I was like, you know what I can do? I'm just going to call every effing hotel in these, in, in, well, I was like, maybe London will be where they go. Cause there's a big Chinatown there, but I was like, no, probably it'll be somewhere smaller. Cause these aren't morons. Let me try Manchester first and we'll work our way out. So I tried Manchester. I called 140 some odd hotels and I said, Hey, look, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm the brother of, and I gave the girlfriend's name uh, and I'm just wondering if she's there. I can't get in touch. I've got a pretty important message. 
everyone is every time, every time they answer the phone, um, you know, you know, we don't have anybody by that name here. We don't have anybody by that name here. No one by that name here until eventually one of them said, I'm not allowed to say if we have a guest by that name, but if we do, I'll take the message and I'll give it to them. And if they happen to be here, you know, you know, they'll have, they'll have the message. And I'm like, bingo, that's the folks. Right. And so, and so I said, all right, here's the message. I called back a few minutes later. And I said, you know what? Don't worry about it. She just called me back. And the, and the, the nice lady was like, I was just about to go upstairs and give her this letter. I said, you know, don't worry about it one bit. So I'll let the authorities know at that point, the Manchester police, I already had the DHS, the department of Homeland security in the U S side uh, involved. I said, look, I know where they're at. I know what hotel they're in. Go get them. Right. And so Eventually, a few days later, it was, a, it was a longer story, but eventually they did go in there. They got one of the guys, got the money. Then the, you know, those things started tumbling and uh, we got all the money back. It was, it was a full recovery. It was the first recovery ever uh, in, a, in a DeFi hack. And so, so I was really excited about that and got a little bit addicted to, you know, to doing that. Um, they kept nothing. Holy shit. You that, actually that are story. That's insane. That is insane. Wow. It was, it was so much fun. No, so that wasn't like I wasn't like yeah, keep a few bucks, you know. That wasn't the situation in that because you know it was. I was just I was just like guys, I've been cool with you. Like you should have given the money, but you're being you know you know you're being really stuck up about this, and you're not you're not participating. So fine, screw it. So they got arrested. You know that process worked out how it did. But then I was thinking this is something that over time maybe I can start to actually help out people with a little bit and see where it goes. And so fast forward about a year, which would have been about a year ago, I can't remember which project it was, uh, but. I was introduced to a project that had had money stolen and, and by a friend of mine at Stargate and um, not stolen by a friend of mine at Stargate, but I was introduced by a friend of mine at Stargate um, at Layer Zero who, uh, who introduced me to the team. And, and at that point, you know, I said, look, let, let, let's work on the messaging. Like finding the person on the chain is not where I think the resources need to be spent because we've been doing that for years and never results in anything. I think communication is the key here. Like, let's talk to the person. And see if we can convince them to do some stuff. And that's where this, that was kind of the genesis of, of this whole process. And it worked out, you know, we start, we start getting actual recoveries. So then once that happens to answer your first question, is you know, then, well, the, you know, one company sees a recovery another company sees a recovery. Then you just start kind of being pulled into the groups, uh, you know, off and on. And, you know, eventually you become the person who writes, who, who writes these messages. And in the case, you know, the case where t- you guys are talking about now, Kyber, I'm advising them on the messaging, but I'm not writing their messaging. And you can tell that in the way it's written versus the ones I have been involved with, which is like 35, 36 of them in the past year. You can pretty much tell it's me writing the messages. And, you know, a really key part there is like, I'm not working with companies that are not going to live by what they say because the integrity of this negotiation is super important. Right. So I was working with a company a few months ago and they said, I was like, okay, this is the message you should send out. I think we have a good profile on the hacker. This is the way we should approach this to make sure everyone comes away unscathed. And they said, yeah, we're going to do this. And then we're going to turn them into the FBI. And I'm like, well, then I'm not going to work with you. Right? I'm not, then I'm not going to do it. Because the moment that I'm putting my name there saying, look, I'm helping on this negotiation. And then you go screw them. No one's ever going to actually like participate in these. Like we have to have, you know, honor amongst thieves here. Right. You know, there has to be at least a little bit of that. And so, uh, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of how that, that's kind of how that process works. Now I get thrown into these rooms, you know, once in a while to help out. It's a very tiring process. It's frankly a thankless process because if I'm being honest, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're the Messiah for, you know, a couple of days and then you never hear from anybody again. This is all pro bono work, you know, for the most part. And so it's, I was you know, right it's, about it's, to ask that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's mostly, I mean, it, you know, people are like, yeah, we're, you know, we're going to give 10% of the recovered money for sure. And then they get the money back and it's like, yeah, just kidding. You know, I hope you have a good day. You know, we're, we'll talk about it soon. Well done. Whoa, 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 you know, whoa, whoa. The people that you recover money for ripped oh, you yeah. off. Oh dude, you wouldn't, 
it's 50, 60% of them don't even say thank you. Literally. It's kind of amazing. And it's not just, you know, I mean, these are teams of people. There are like, there are like a lot of people who are in there and I can throw some names that are really great. Like Alicia Katz is, is in a lot of these groups. Tay is in them. Sam CZ's son. Uh, you know, you know, uh, there's a, I, I really could list out, you know, six, seven, eight people who do great work in their own ways. Like Alicia's good at organizing. Sam is good at the security side, you know, just all this kind of stuff. But honestly, like it's, I don't want to like be negative, you know, but it's kind of disgusting to be honest, you know, like the amount of like, or the lack of the amount of, of even like, thank you, appreciate it guys. You know, here's a pizza um, that you get from, from these folks a lot of times. I'm disgusted on your behalf. I mean, that's unfortunate. Like you would think that a project that you've saved would honor their commitments to you. I mean, even if there's not a commitment, because because you don't like you know you're not like explicitly saying, "Hey, look, give me you know this." You know, a lot of times, some some people do, but that's not the way I work. I, I'm I'm always like, "Look, I'll help you. I'm happy to help," and I am. I'm happy to help these people for free. It doesn't matter to me. I just don't want to be told, "Hey, if this happens, this happens," and I'm like, "Okay, great. I'm looking forward to that. That's gonna be that's gonna be a good day," and then it just doesn't happen. You know that it's a uh, it's a little bit frustrating, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I will say there are some, there are some outliers though. Like for example, Alchemix, I worked on the Alchemix hack, which was uh, part of the curve hack. Alchemix couldn't have been cooler about everything. I mean, they were perfect. Like they were from the get go. They were so appreciative, so thankful, giving all the access to the information you need at the end of it, worked with their DAO to, to, to like support the security work that I'm doing and the team that I've got to pay out of my own pocket, you know, they, they, they were super cool all the way through the whole process. And if it, if that was the case, always, you would have a lot more people like me helping out these, these, these protocols. Right. But as it is, there's loads of time, loads of effort, and there's real risk involved in it, you know, cause people don't like you suddenly cause you just screwed their theft up. Right. And to have that be a situation where like, you know, you're not, you're not being taken care of at all, even from like a psychological level, it's not very motivating for other people to get involved and help out too. What do you find to be the best tactic or tactics in, in negotiating with these hackers? And, and maybe the flip side of that, well, like what are the big mistakes protocols make when they're trying to like get their money back? The, the big mistake I think is not profiling who the, hack, who, who the attacker is. And so like a lot of times the protocols are freaking out, right? They have a lot of anxiety and they have a lot of pressure from their community to like hurry up and get something done. And so one of the first things that myself or, or like Alicia, for example, will say is take it easy, step back for now, tell your, your community, we got it under control. We're sorting it out, but we're not going to talk about it until we have something to say. Right. So, and actually stick to it, right. This is a, this is a big mistake people make these, these protocols make is they talk too much and they say things on accident that give away where they're at with the, you know, with, with the search. Maybe they say, oh, we're not quite sure yet where he is, but we think we found that's not, don't say that right? Don't say that. Even if it's true, you don't say it. You keep everything to yourself. Let it be a question. That's the first thing. Second is not profiling the hacker properly uh, from like a technical point of view. Like for example, the Kyber hack is very well done. That's a complicated hack. Like this person's an expert. And so when you're negotiating with this person, you're not going to talk to them like they're an idiot because they're not, right? It's just going to piss them off. Like clearly they have an ego. So you're not going to talk to them like that. You want to treat them with the respect that in a certain sense they deserve, Right. But you also want to make sure that everyone's aligned on getting to the other side of this coming out, not not as harmed. Um, and then third, I think that I'm, I'm not really sure how to say it, but like like just keeping control of one's own, like making sure to get rest, making sure to like like act as a team, being organized, things like that is something that a lot of times these folks don't do. And it, and it screws things up because you have 
three people doing the same thing, overlapping jobs and this sort of thing. And it creates, it creates distrust. Sometimes it creates like, you know, just like a waste of time. Um, and it's also like people get in the way of each other and fall over their feet. Right. And so being super organized, shutting up for a while, and then thinking through how can we get through this situation in a way that's not vengeful. It's not angry. It's not sad. It's just logical. How can we get through this in a way that's going to get us out of it smoothly and make sure that the other person feels like they're getting a good, you know, good outcome too. Everyone needs to come away a winner. You guys are negotiators, right? You don't ever walk away from negotiation saying, I got everything and they got nothing. The cyber attacker has taken your advice about being well-rested. And <laughs> I think you're exactly right. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that was so interesting, right? You know, I, again, I don't want to talk too much about, uh, you know, about this one in particular, but this guy's approach is very different. And I think it is an evolution in a certain way of like how these are probably going to you know, how, how these might get done in the future. This is a really interesting modification to the normal. And I think it, it does say a lot of things about all the topics that I'm happy to talk about, but I feel like I've been kind of monologuing for four minutes already. So I'll be quiet. <laughs> no, look, we, we brought you on here to hear your perspective. So we love the monologue. Um, I, I guess the other question I'd ask is you've, you've been through, it sounds a lot of negotiations. It sounds like three a month from, from what you were describing what are you seeing in terms of patterns? Like what's changed over the last couple of years in the profile of these attackers, but also what do they tend to look like? Where do they tend to be from? What are their skill levels, backgrounds, countries? Help us get a picture of what you're seeing when you're interacting with these folks. Sure. Yeah. I mean, th three out of four times they're um, Asian folks, I would say, um, maybe a little bit higher than that coming out of Singapore, coming out of Hong Kong, coming out of uh, mainland China, uh, sometimes Vietnam, places like that. But um, almost always, I would say 75% of the time it's coming out of Asia. And you can tell hmm. this via like writing patterns and stuff. A lot of times, and that's another thing you look for is like writing patterns. You can tell where someone's at, you know, um, in that way, but, uh, three quarters of them are that. And almost everybody's very young. Like these are kids. Like how young usually. is very young? Like 20, like 19, 23, you know, these, these are young folks who've gone through engineering school potentially, or maybe they have just, you know, done hacking for the past six, eight years of, on their own learning or whatever. Um, they're very skilled. Usually they usually don't have any money. You know, they come from kind of tough backgrounds. A lot of times I, I've actually become kind of friends if I'm, if it's, I know it sounds weird, but I've become what I might call like social friends in a certain sense with a few of these people, because, you know, they are, I'm the only person that a lot of them have ever talked to about this stuff. Their family doesn't know their friends don't know what what's happened, mm. but I do. Right. And so I can talk to them and, and say, Hey, how's everything going? Are you, are you cool now? Is everything all right? You know, and they'll talk to me about what music they're listening to. And, you know, these are okay people sometimes who just saw an opportunity and took it. They saw 500 bucks on the ground and picked it up, you know? And, and I, I think that, you know, that's an important thing here too, is keeping in mind, these are mostly young people. And my, my, my goal is not to destroy a young person's life, no matter what they did, you know, like it's, your brain, your prefrontal cortex is not quite developed at that point yet. You're making stupid decisions. You know, we're all driving too fast, right? And and just guiding them in the right direction and trying to keep it where where their life isn't ruined, but they're also not ruining anyone else's life is usually the goal that I come into it with. And, and what have you seen change over the last couple of years as you've been interacting with some of these uh, incidents? Uh, well, the frequency has certainly changed as in it's gone up a lot. The ability to get away, technically speaking, has gone down a lot. Uh, like you guys were speaking about earlier, you know, it's a lot harder to wash through online platforms. It, I mean, there's ways of doing it, but it's much harder. The sleuths have gotten way better. 
at finding, mm. at just tracing down these people. So even if they're using something like tornado, like you, you're not, you're not getting like you're, there's, there's ways to figure out with high probability who you are, especially if you're working with big amounts of money. Um, and so, so I would say, yeah, the frequency has gone up a lot, but also the ability to capture them has gone up a lot. And therefore the, you know, the, the entrance of negotiations, I think is appropriate. Um, it's like the right time for that kind of thing in the past couple of years. I will say too, that on the, on like the, say the white hat bounty side of things, they have not caught up on this at all. So companies are paying garbage rates for really important bounties and they're not incentivizing these people to actually give them the information. So like, you're sort of asking for it in a certain way. I'm not, I don't want to blame the victims really, but if you're saying, I mean, I, for example, found an exploit recently in, um, in a popular place where people publish their posts. Okay, let's call it that. And I wrote to them on the bug bounty program. I don't need the money, but I wrote to them on the bug bounty program. And I said, hey, look, this is the thing. And how do you feel about this? Uh, and didn't, get a, didn't even get a response. And so I followed up two weeks later. And I said, look, I'm going to publish this exploit like existence on Twitter if you don't respond to me, at least, because this is still existent two weeks later. They respond back, okay, sorry. Yeah, we didn't respond. We'll fix it soon. I respond back, okay, what level of bug bounty does, does this qualify for? Ghost it again, right? So it's like if so, so that so that's my experience going through this in like a really low level. I could have just deployed the exploit, screwed people out of you know a couple hundred thousand dollars before it was caught, and walked away. And so the incentive, if your goal is to actually make money here, is so skewed toward being bad because the the good side like supports it so little that the industry is like it's like it's it's just asking for these problems. I think that is very true. It does seem almost impossible to really fully remedy that imbalance, right? Because it's always going to be the case that protocols can't afford to pay out a 10% bug bounty of the amount of money that would have been attacked because at a certain point, those losses have to get socialized among their users, right? They can't, they can't absorb that off their own balance sheets. And so in order for the protocols to assume that they're default alive, they have to be able to say like, look, well, you know, I only have so much money that I can really devote towards security audits and bug bounties uh, otherwise, you know, users wouldn't tolerate it, right? If, if a user, if, if somebody tells their user, hey, guess what? A white hat showed up and they found some great hack. So 10% of your funds is going bye-bye. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like there'd be, there, there'd be a mutiny, right? So it's, it's never, it's never going to be as advantageous to be a, a white hat as to be a black hat, but you're right. The imbalance is so severe that a lot of white hats can't make a living being a white hat. Like they have to find other sources of work um, unless they're yeah, really, Yeah, these are two really, different really dollars. Good. These are two different dollars, right? I mean, ten dollars of dirty money is the same as you know fifty cents of clean or a dollar of clean. Like you don't need to have ten percent of the stuff going out. That's okay. The dirty money, nobody wants that crap. Like if 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 these people, these skilled folks, could reliably say, "Look, if I find a problem in a protocol where I could have stolen two hundred fifty million dollars, I could black hat it and keep twenty five, or I can white hat it and you'll give me a million dollars." Like I bet you, almost everyone's going to say, "Screw it, I'm white hatting this thing." It's clean. It's mm. above the board, and I can do it all day long. I can spend my life doing this. I can get a team of people. I can build a business on this, you know, whatever. But right now, it's like, you know, a clean hack. You come to someone. There's two hundred fifty million dollars on the line, and if they respond to you, which a lot of times they don't, they'll give you ten grand, you know, twenty grand. It's just, right. it's just so far off, you know. Just to flip this on its head a little bit, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about you know, the process of resolving a hack after it's occurred. From your vantage point, is there anything that projects can do before an incident 
to prepare for the possibility of an incident um, ahead of time? Are there things that you would tell any protocols out there today that they should like think about? Like, how do you think about, you know, the preemptive approach to this? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, besides like penetration testing and audits and, you know, that sort of thing, just the disaster response part, I think is really important, Robert. Uh, like, you know, the part about organizing yourself and, and you know, being chill and that kind of thing. Um, and, and so to that end, so so I, I have done a little bit of that for some for some different protocols that have asked me for it. And that's something that through a security, a small security company I've got, like they'll say, hey, look, can you can you put us through like a drill kind of a thing? Uh, Sam CZ Sun started up a group called uh, SEAL Team uh, 6. And I think they're doing this kind of stuff soon or they might already be doing it. I'm I'm involved in that only in the, in the sense that I'm like helping a little bit with like a guide they're writing, but I'm not actually on the SEAL Team thing, uh, just to be clear. Um, but yeah, so, so I think those kind of things would be really useful. It costs so little, you know, but then your team gets, your team's already ready. They've got a notion ready where all the data is going into. They've got the Google docs ready. They got the drive ready for sharing the files. They've got the telegram war room already set up for everyone to be joining in there. They know the list of people they're going to be calling in, in the case of an attack. It's a, you know, it's a day of prevention that might save the entire, the entire company later on down the road. That makes sense. And last question I have for you, Ogle, what would you like to see change in the industry or in the kind of security practices going forward? Oh, gosh, I think, I mean, well, first off, I think the the, the imbalance we were talking about earlier needs to be fixed. Um, second, I think that projects paying for their own audits and deciding if it gets published or not needs to be fixed. <laughs> Like I, I find like, like, like audits as marketing to be kind of disgusting and really, really, you know, the incentives are really misaligned there for the public versus, versus what's supposed to be happening. Um, I think there's solutions for this, like actually having proper code review, like writing tests, like, like actually having like reasonable, oh <laughs> you know, like having wait, reasonable wait. coding what? practices, <laughs> you know, that'd be a good improvement. Um, you know, just catching up to web too, really, you know, I mean, a lot of ways, like, like I love Web three stuff. Yeah, I've been in this essentially since the beginning. Been in crypto since twenty twelve. Before you know, a long time ago. But Web two just does it better on a lot of the stuff. It's had the time to screw up and it's matured. But a lot of the people in Web three are like, "Screw Web two. Everything about Web two sucks. It's the old way of thinking." Okay, sure. But like you know, sprints in development are useful. QA is actually a good thing to do. You know, like these are important parts of the process that you should be doing before you deploy a. Co- you know, a contract out there that people are putting their hard-earned money into. It's even more important in these cases because in traditional Web2 stuff, you don't have, you're not holding people's money, right? But now you are, like you have a responsibility, in my opinion, to really, really, really get this stuff right. And it goes the opposite way where people just don't pay any attention at all. That That is terrifying that there are people out there who are writing smart contracts without tests. <laughs> some, some of those things <laughs> I'm like, okay, yeah. I, yeah, it happens. It's It should embarrass okay. the entire industry uh, when it yes. does happen. Okay. Well, Ogle, um, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. You're doing the Lord's work. Um, please let us know what's the closest pizza shop so we can buy you several pizzas. Um, also, <laughs> if, if you're if you're looking for, uh, how can people find you if they want to get in touch with you or if they're looking for some security assistance? Yeah, sure. Um, so my Twitter is uh, at CryptoGle, C-R-Y-P-T-O-G-L-E. Um, same thing on Telegram. People can hit me up if there's like an emergency uh, at that same username. Um, OgleSecurity.com is is where I do some stuff, but I'm really, I'm not leaning into that, to be honest with you. It's just like, it's just kind of there in case someone needs, you know, an insurance or they want to do some philanthropy and be nice to me. You know, it's, it's, it's very rarely used. 
uh, just Twitter is kind of, it's probably the best place to chat. And, um, and yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, just, just between us, I, you know, you can edit this part out if you want to, but I'm, I'm building, I told you I'm building an L1, been building it for about, about a year and a half now. And it's very, very heavily focused on security, user experience, things like that to try and solve some of these problems that, that do exist. And I, and I think we're going to, including like the, uh, the audit problem, like we're going to be doing all the audits and stuff, you know? And so, so I think that just a little bit of time down the road, again, you can edit all this crap out, but I'm just telling you guys down the oh, road, I think it. we're going to be in a situation that's, that's a lot better than how it is now. Like I'm going to bring in some of those web two old school, you know, like geezerly ways in, in, into, you know, the chains and actually make it safe for users. I hope. That's great to hear. Well, you're, oh. um, you're doing the Lord's work and uh, anybody who's listening, please buy this man a pizza because he, he deserves some, <laughs> some thanks for all. Thank you. And I'm work. so hungry too. I'm so hungry. Okay, great. All right. <laughs> all right. Take Ogle, care, fellas. Thanks for joining us, man. Absolutely. Good to meet you. That was hardcore. I, I, I was not expecting it to be quite. I was so not expecting that to end with the, I'm making an L1. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for him. Good for him. You know, I mean, it just, uh, it just was like, it was like, so focused on application level and higher. And then it's like, nope, making it all one. <laughs> Look, only infrastructure gets funded in this industry. You know that. Come on. Yeah. 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 I, I don't yeah, know anyway. if I'm part of the problem, part of the solution. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're mostly the problem. I mean, we're, I think all four of us are part of the problem. Yeah. But right. oh well. Um, all right, cool. So uh I think we we probably have time for just one more story. Um, so just one. Uh, one of the big stories, just one, I think. Um, well, so the, the, one of the, one of the big dramas that's been taking place aside from hacks has been a new L2 called blast speaking of infrastructure. Um, so blast is launched by uh, Pac-Man who is the founder of blur, the uh, NFT exchange, uh, in which we are investors, full disclosure. Uh, so blast, it was described as being a, a, a layer two that is going to have what's called native yield. And so native yield basically means you deposit uh, assets into the L2 bridge. So you're moving some ETH, you're moving some USDC or whatever. And uh, Blast will take that ETH or that USDC and it will deposit it, the ETH into Lido, the stables into Maker in order to give you yield that rebases on the L2. So the idea is people are on these L2s, they have capital is just sitting around there doing nothing in the bridge. Why not make sure that you get some extra yield for just sitting around there doing whatever you're doing? And eventually Blur is going to also be, you know, built on top of Blast or is going to move on to Blast, something along, something along those lines. So he raised about 20 million bucks for Blast from Paradigm, Standard Crypto, and a bunch of uh, crypto angels. And it turns out that this project, which was announced, um, you know, a little bit over a week ago now, uh, is already ready for deposits. So you can deposit money into Blast nominally and start getting some yield as well as getting points that will presumably result in an airdrop. Uh, the problem is that Blast does not exist. So there is no L2, there is no platform, there is no smart contract, there's nothing. There's just a multi-sig right now. And this multi-sig, as of today, about a little bit over a week, is currently holding $620 million in deposits that have been deposited into this more or less multi-sig. Uh, over 50,000 users have deposited funds into this thing. There's a three-month period during which nobody can withdraw. So this money is just going to sit in that multi-sig for three months. And um, this has made a lot of people very upset. This, this contract, the, the multi-sig, has five signers on the multi-sig, um, but it has not been revealed who the signers are. So normally when there's a signer, you know, if you look at, you know, Polygon has a multi-sig, 
uh, a bunch of, you know, a bunch of these protocols, a bunch of L2s have multisigs, uh, Arbitrum, Optimism, et cetera, they all have multisigs. But usually the the signers of the multisigs are known entities. They're people in the community who are, are you know, already docs. And so people know, okay, I can trust this set of five community well, leaders well, or whatever. Well, you also have the ability to withdraw. I think that's the yes. Just, also, you have a, you have the ability to withdraw as well. I think um, I think that's the uh, that's the part where it feels like we went, went back to 2017, right? No withdrawal. Worse than 2017. I mean, it's a loot box. <laughs> it's a lot. But here's the thing: in the old school lock drops, it was literally like, "Hey, this is programmatically locked, and we can't steal your money." Lock drop. Like I remember those lock drops, and they weren't. Put $620 million in a multi-sig that doesn't belong to you. The original lock drops were at least contractually enforced that said, you're going to be able to get your money out in 90 days, period, full stop. Yeah, so the, the story is that there's been a lot of criticism about the security of the multi-sig, the withdrawal policy, the referral scheme. There's like a referral program where if you bring more people in, you get more points. Um, so, you know, a little questionable marketing tactics. Um, the, the sort of yield on yield promises and, uh, you know, the endorsement by all these VCs and, and, um, crypto influencers, Pac-Man, the, the founder of Blur and the founder of Blast came out and defended the project, uh, and made clear that Paradigm, who was a lead investor, did not necessarily agree with all their tactics, but they decided to go uh, through with it anyway. And then a few days ago, Paradigm came out and publicly criticized Blast launch because I think Paradigm was facing a lot of heat for their involvement with Blast. And Paradigm basically said, look, we talked to to the Blast team. We don't agree with the way we're doing this. We think it cheapens the project. Um, but, you know, they're great guys and something, something, something. Um, so it, it it seems like uh, a lot of people are upset, but not quite, um, you know, so to be clear, we are not investors into Blast. Uh, but it seems like the people who are investors into Blast are kind of saying like, oh, we don't like that people seem to be upset and somehow they're directing this anger at us. Um, so we will kind of disaffiliate ourselves publicly from this, but of course they already own the tokens and, and, uh, they're, they're the right, future rights to tokens, the future rights to tokens. I should say, yes, the tokens don't exist yet for, for blast. I mean, a few things, I think there's a few lines of criticism, as you've said, one, people don't like the way the yield is being phrased saying, Hey, you know, uh, this is not, you know, risk-free yield. There is risk associated with these, these sorts of yield. People don't like the, the multi-sig um, and pe people don't like the marketing around it, right? There's a kind of cute diagram where they show one person referring many people and those people referring many people that look suspiciously like a sideways <laughs> look, pyramid. Look, 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 um, look, look. This is just decentralized Herbalife and the we've decentralized Bill Ackman by the crypto Twitter people. Bill, Bill Ackman lost the, the Herbalife, by the way. So, uh, you know, I don't know if that's the well, best so, so, comp, so, 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 No, no, I think I, I my hot take on this is this is a little bit like the genies out of the bottle about like, hey, people actually, you know, want $600 million went into this and like my ZK rollup that I worked really hard on for three years has like 30 million. So like, I guess we have, all have to offer yield. I think it's going to become this arms race. Totally. Uh, I, I and think... it's like, it, I, 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 I agree the marketing was distasteful and whatever, but if we look back on this in six months, I'll make the prediction now. We're going to be like, oh, okay, I guess every L2 is offering this. Uh, you know, it's like, it does feel like it's a one-way function in that. Totally. I, I, think, I think the product is great, actually, right? The, the trend in DeFi has been moving towards more sort of base yield rebasing products and then nesting those in those things like 
Staked ETH is larger than ETH in Aave. Staked ETH is larger than ETH in MakerDAO. Um, it, it makes it better for protocols, but you don't have to compete with sort of this risk-free rate that people are comfortable taking the risk on, you know. I prefer could, calling it a risk-neutral rate. You are Risk-neutral rate. Yeah, there's a little bit. Um, but, you know, certainly it's it's sort of broadly accepted that, hey, we were comfortable with these levels of risk. It's the way the market is moving and the market is sort of speaking. And unfortunately, if you want to use staked ETH the way you would normally use ETH in DeFi or in other, you know, applications on, on Ethereum, it's kind of a pain in the ass because it's this weird ERC rebasing token um, that you can't use like normal native ETH. You can't pay for you know gas with it necessarily. And so I think enshrining it and sort of making a first-party product that is doing what people already want to do makes a ton of sense to me. And obviously, you know, again, the market is sort of speaking to it. The multi-sig thing, I also agree, was uh, kind of goofy. You should probably have at least a time lock on it or have some sort of like, you know, base. I mean, if it's an OP stack fork effectively, like have sort of a, you know, verifier contract. Like, Wait, but it's, ha- a, have- it's an OP, OP stack fork, but not super chain apparently, right? It's yes. like not going to yes, join it's, it's right? too, that's, that's I think key. it's too forked from, from OP stack with the whole rebasing thing. So it's a little different. Um, so that, that was a little goofy, but yeah, I think the flip side here is, hey, they've created an immense amount of, you know, uh, hype around the product. They front run all these other uh, roll-ups that have basically been sleeping. Like their go-to-market has been total shit, which is, you know, why no one actually wants to use these like random, you know, long-tail L2s. And, and now, you know, Scroll or uh, uh, Blast basically invented this idea and they had the momentum. And, and so that anyone else going like a fast roller? Was that, was that <laughs> Yeah, I kind of should have scroll, but that kind of came to mind. I'm like, you know, what the fuck are they doing? But hey, 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 um, as, as, a, as a scroll investor, I, I, I will stand up for them. I, I think yeah, that they no, actually they went the right way. Go to market bad. You know, you can fix it. But I think it, <laughs> it reminds me of, yeah, it reminds me a lot of Blur, where there's like there's these invisible lines in, in crypto that people don't want to touch, right? Um, of, Oh, we have to pay royalties to artists, or oh, you know, we 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 uh, NFTs are about the art; it's not about trading. And I think Pac-Man is actually a great founder in being able to violate those those lines and say, no, actually, this is wrong. This is what the market wants, and the market speaks and and uh, you know says, yeah, that's correct. Yes, I I I, I take your points that uh, clearly this is something the market is speaking that it wants. Although to be clear, it doesn't actually have this yet, so I don't think people actually can say with certainty that, yes, this is the thing that's going to get traction. I can see just as much that a lot of that capital leaves the moment the airdrop hits. Um, just because, like, okay, do people really want, uh, like, an L2 with the rebasing, da da da, da like, I think what I mean, people want are applications on L2s. And what do devs want? They want TVL. They want, you know, the capital that's there that's ready to deploy, that's ready to yeah. use their applications. And so I actually can see this being very popular with devs it, it, as well. It, it, it's it's not, we're not turning back from this. This is like, it's like restaking. Like all the things where everyone is going to be very angry about the rehypothecation implied, the sort of like implied leverage. The market always wants that in this industry way more than anything else. And like the moment someone offers it even a tiny bit, there'll be like a ton of capital that chases it. I, I think there's there's no way back. I, I bet you we will, we will see every other L2 do the same thing. There's this kind of, it's just like, unfortunate. in some ways there will be some extra sy- systemic risk, uh, unfortunately, but like the point is like, it, it's definitely gonna, it, there's no way everyone doesn't copy it. I think this is way too strong of a claim. Like these are airdrop farmers. Everyone here is literally, they, they're not using the product. There's no product. So if, if <laughs> well, they launch well, the L2 what, what, okay, and the L2 gets developers and applications, then yes, maybe there's a ghost of an argument there, but this is like the airdrop to end all airdrops. That's why people are here. And every marginal dollar that gets contributed, like, you know, right now there's a futures market for blast on AVO, very, very low liquidity, but it's being priced at like north of a billion FTV. So clearly the market expects that this is going to be a massive fucking airdrop. 
And that's why they're putting all this money in a one-way multi-sig with no product. So it's possible. It's possible that yes, this takes over the world. No, 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 no. But the reason I say this is like, again, from the perspective of a layer two developer, there's a million of them now, right? Because there's all these stacks, all these software kits to make it like I can do it on the weekend as a hobby project. I'm not saying those ones will be successful. I'm just saying it. the, the tech barrier has gone down enough that there's inevitably a lot of people who look at the $600 million in Blastonic and are like, I can do better. And, and that, that just starts the foot race. Like, I, I think don't underestimate that part of the market. The foot race will happen now. I, I agree. Not to use the wrong word, but I think it is a paradigm shift in how people think about L2s. <laughs> I mean, truly, because like... You might say we're big, shifting to a different standard. Oh, <laughs> even better, even better. But I do, I, I agree with Tarun. I think that over time, other L2s are going to figure out how to have a neutral yield to it. And I do think it's actually a really elegant solution to call it restaking, call it, you know, whatever, where you don't have to worry about losing the yield inherent in your ether when you bridge it over to an L2. And I think that is fundamentally incredibly powerful. And I think, you know, I don't know if Blast is going to be the one that actually achieves adoption on top of this, but I do agree with Tarun. I think most L2s over time are going to find a way for you not to have this opportunity cost loss of the Ether staking yield when your Ether is bridged to that L2. And I think they've stumbled on a very natural economic principle here. And I think there's massive risks. I think like Tarun's underselling the risks. Like, uh, no, I'm not. I'm not trying to say there's no risk. I'm just saying that, like, you know, the, the, the everyone is going to close their eyes and pretend they're not there because, like, they see the TVL. Like, I, I, of course, there's tons of risk. Yeah, this is going to an L2 or multiple L2s, including potentially Blast, are going to implode in a spectacular shit show of duration mismatch at some point. Um, SVB on chain. It's going to be SVB on chain, like without a doubt. It might not be Blast. It might be some copycat who makes this. You know, the knowledge of these systems decreases with every fork <laughs> uh, from the original. But one of these L2s is going to implode at some point because, you know, taking all the ether, turning it into staked ether, you know, works great on the way up. There's no slippage. But the there. withdrawal queue might be six months and everyone is suddenly rushing to that. Yeah, that it, that's why I don't think you can abstract that much over the details about this. Like, it's no, not no, like I, just I, I'm, being I'm in not, a money market. My point is, I'm, I'm not saying, like, I'm the one, I would be, I'm the first one to tell you there's a ton of fucking risk here. There's a reason I said we have, we can't, we have to stop fucking calling it risk free. That's the most infuriating part about most of the advertising to me is like everyone just talked about being fucking risk free, which is absolutely not true. It's actually risk neutral because you're not even like you don't even care about the variance because you're using it all the time. Um, right. I, I just think there's kind of this this thing of like inevitably there's just the, the foot race, right? It's like the foot race downhill. And like I don't I just don't see the mark. Like people are going to look at that TVL and they're like, why did I spend so much time building a really elegant L2? But this thing that's a multi-sig has 20x the TVL. That that incentive, that type of like forcing function inevitably causes people to copy. Like I, I just how could that not happen? I, I look, I think that's definitely true for a lot of emerging L2s, right? I think some of them are gonna say, hey, this is a this is a strategy to juice the yield and get me some extra money, right? In the same way that JP Morgan pays you almost nothing on your deposits and small regional banks pay you like almost five percent, right? Because they 
They really desperately well, want what, deposits. What else is the um, roll-up revolution other than unbundling the main bank Ethereum? I, I look. I think when people realize that, like, okay, now I have to figure out the taxes on my auto rebasing currency. Now I have to figure out like, oh, I wanted to withdraw my money to like go hedge something and I can't because it's stuck in a withdrawal queue. And like, there's all this complexity that is gonna show up in places where people don't expect that complexity and they're gonna realize th this is not a free lunch. Like, they realize going too to late. They realize too the late. They realize too late. That's I, they're real. Like, yeah, but it's not going like, to be like Arbitrum and OP Mainnet and all these things start doing this. But but, but the right? problem it's be is these emerging no, 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 the problem is these SDKs for doing your own rollup. OP you know, Orbit. Yeah, all people these, may fork blast. They, people may fork blast. My and point is like they make it so over. that every single one of these side rollups is is why would they not do that? Right? Like it's it just uh, it, it it's 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 such an easy thing. Also, account abstraction actually makes it much easier to make this a native gas model um, for a lot of wallets. And you're actually outsourcing how that conversion gets done to the paymasters. So I actually think some of the technological changes make this even easier to just copy pasta everywhere. Sure, but the withdrawals, like it, I, I would bet a lot of money that this is going to be done manually at first. Right. That to actually get the get, you know, get the money withdrawn from from Lido and get the, you know, the stuff with Maker and not end up paying too much slippage or whatever. Uh, that stuff is going to be done manually in the beginning because it's just the fastest way to get things off the ground. In which case, at some point, someone's going to fuck up. At some point, something's going to go down. At some point, something is going to go wrong and people realize, oh, we don't have everything quite in place yet for this to feel uh, seamless. I, Maybe someday I, it will. I agree. I, I, I agree with you, but I, I don't think that means that people aren't going to just copy even a half-assed type of thing. Totally they will. Totally they will. But it sounds like what you guys are describing is a kind of maximalism that this is, or almost accelerationism, right? This is inevitable. All rollups are going in this direction, and this is what the future of rollups will all look like. It'll all be rebasing, Lido-based, Maker-based, blah, blah, There's blah. There's no... Which, by the way, if, I, I know, if you believe uh, look, look, that, look, 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 you should no, be super bold along Lido and Maker. I know you want the EA version of, uh, of, of, of uh, <laughs> yeah. fucking safety, like roll-up safety. Roll-up safety. We move from I, AI safety no, no. to roll-up safety. I, I think there is a, a truth to this, though. I think... Frankly, you see, what you sound like a little bit is like Bitcoin maxis in like 2013. Um, I, I'm, I think there will be a tipping point if they can actually attract wow. the best <laughs> devs to the platform, then it's kind of game over. Um, but I think to that point, you're, you're right, we'll see. But I, I think like it's, it's hard to say that, oh, they don't, you know, enshrine or believe in certain principles that we believe in. And therefore, like it's not going to work or there's this, you know, technical complication they can't overcome. Like... I, you know, I think history has shown that, hey, at a certain point, this stuff can be figured out. And, uh, you know, these things can just build massive flywheels um, that are just like very difficult to break. Yeah, look, my my heuristic is that simplicity wins. This is so to do this is so complex and has so many pointy edges that everybody now has to think about. If you have your money in a roll up that's doing this shit, you have to think about it. And that is the reason why I think it's going to, it's not going to be the default. Some people may choose to do this, especially if you're trading on Blur. I think this is great because Blur, you know, whatever. You, you have some passive liquidity sitting there. You want some extra yield, fine. If you use Blur, this is part of the equation. But are people going to do everything in environments that are built up like this? I, I, I think the answer is no, because it's too complex. People will certainly try for a while, though, before they realize. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely that, try. Like, like, don't, that, that's that's I think more the the the, the fundamental. Thing. Right. Anyway, all right. We 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 got to wrap. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week. See y'all.